What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Heart Podcast, episode 221. Today, we are going to be talking about the ayahuasca murders. Yeah, this is a very, very intriguing and just honestly a tragic case coming out of Peru, actually, Mm -hmm. um, involving a Canadian man by the name of Sebastian Woodruff, who went down there to learn how to become a shaman, actually. And obviously take part in ayahuasca ceremonies, but things did not exactly go as planned for him. Mm-mm. And things definitely took a very dark turn. So it's it's one of those cases that just there there's definitely some different thoughts on it, I guess, or theories about right. what may have happened. Well, because there's so much that's unanswered with this one. Right, right. There's a whole lot of room for curiosity in this case. Definitely, for sure. Definitely. Yeah, that's what we're going to be diving into today, and it's um, this topic just in general, ayahuasca and plant medicine is one that's, I think we've talked about briefly in past episodes here on Mile mm-hmm. Higher, and just something that both Ken and I are, are very, very interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this one will definitely be a good one to dive into, I think. So, But before we get into the episode, just a couple quick things. First of all, if you haven't checked out merch in a while, we still have some merch from our last collection. We're actually working on a new collection, which will be coming out hopefully here in the next month or so. Mm-hmm. So if you um, like something from the last collection, get your hands on it yeah. because we have limited stock. Today's episode is also brought to you by Native Masterclass, Stitch Fix, Dipsy, and Simply Safe. Well, let's just go ahead and dive into this one because we got a lot of ground to cover. We do. Um, beginning with talking about Sebastian, who he was, mm-hmm. um, and looking into his background and what led him to actually leave his life in Canada, mm-hmm. go to the Amazon jungle, yeah. and pursue this new life of becoming a plant healer, a shaman, mm-hmm. and you know what exactly went wrong down there. So Sebastian Paul Woodroff was born on October 26, 1976 in Barrie, Ontario, and grew up in the Comox Valley area of Vancouver Island, British Columbia. And ever since he was a kid, Sebastian was a dreamer and an adventurer. He loved being outside, whether it was hiking through the mountains or wandering through the woods. Sebastian preferred to spend his time hanging out barefoot in nature. And as a teenager, one of his favorite things to do was wander through the BC rainforests and look for wild mushrooms and edible plants. He was always fascinated with foraging, and he quickly learned about the healing properties of many wild plants and how to identify them. His friends remember him as sort of a prankster with a big personality who liked to get people out of their comfort zones. He really cared about other people, and he wanted to push them to do incredible things. So naturally, he was a pretty popular and personable guy. His sister Jamie remembered that he was always getting stopped in the streets to say hi to friends, even on short walks to the store. And Sebastian had always been kind of an unconventional guy, a bit of a free spirit, you could say. He was just kind of different. He didn't feel super comfortable conforming to society's rules for life, and he wasn't afraid of being himself, even if it wasn't in line with the mainstream. His stepbrother, Richard Dockrell, said that he had a strong personal philosophy, and he opposed consumerism, materialism, and technology. So like I said, Sebastian was really into nature. He was quite the naturalist, and he never worried too much about making loads of money or a high-powered career. To him, true happiness wasn't a fast car and a mansion. It wasn't being socially powerful or popular. Sebastian believed that real happiness was achieving oneness with nature. I vibe with that. I totally get that too. I wish I lived my life that way. Yeah, it's difficult to 
to live that life of just oneness with nature and no. you know leave all the, the material stuff behind it is hard in today's day and age especially to get outside enough i find that really difficult i'd love to spend yeah you know like at least two hours outside a day which yeah exactly i mean it's so good for you even just mm -hmm. get out and take a walk for like yeah 30 minutes is better than not going outside at all yeah but it's clear that this pull towards you know nature and just inherently wanting to be you know one with nature was sort of the beginning of his path yeah into shamanism and you mm -hmm. know his interests and in foraging for wild, you know wild mushrooms and stuff like that's all you know kind of in line with not only what they do in the amazon jungle the indigenous peoples do but i mean even our ancestors going back thousands and thousands of years you know that's that's where we were at one point too so to be at this point in history uh, or in civilization where we're so far removed from that with technology and it's seemingly everything you know mm -hmm. did you see that um this is kind of sidetracked but did you see that tesla's got a a robot coming you guys see that no no we've been chatting about robots saying, yeah. on the sesh though elon musk company tesla has created and he unveiled it recently a humanoid robot that i think he said Great. i could be wrong it was like twenty twenty thousand dollars or something like that but it's gonna have ai um so just to me that's scary because we're going further and further into this world of mm -hmm. robotics and also the metaverse is like being crammed down our throats where you're seeing all these oh, commercials yeah. on all tv now it's all over the place metaverse 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 trying to get mm -hmm. people to get into the metaverse yet that's going to pull us away from being one, one with nature and i think it is so important from you know all sorts of aspects whether it's spiritual physical mental to be you know still connected to to mother earth in, in yeah. some way so it's becoming more and more challenging these days with all totally, the distractions totally. that we have so i have i have mad respect for people that mm -hmm. that do choose to live this way because mm -hmm. it is a difficult way to go uh in our current society but i do think it is probably for for the best in many cases but not yeah. always so what's also interesting about sebastian though is that he was uh, a youtuber he had a youtube channel mm -hmm. and What's really helpful about having YouTube channels is that we can actually like get a glimpse yeah. into um, who he really was and hear him speak. And so we're gonna play uh, a clip of him talking about how nature helps heal people. Having a hard day, feel stressed out. Um, it's hard to snap out of it, but- Look at all his mushrooms. Just go out into the woods. Those are all mushrooms? Out yeah. There. Get out there, get out ah. of the town, get out of the house, get out of wherever you are, get out of your headspace and like go, get your shoes on and go out into the woods and talk to the plants talk to the birds talk to the trees they're listening they they're alive there's actually a lot of scientific evidence going on about plants can pick up on your emotional state mm -hmm. and maybe they can also help out with that so uh that's what i found today i went out and um i've just been on the computer a lot and there's that you know that gets a little bit heady and just that all like eased out and just came to this calm place where i was just kind of like singing while i was picking mushrooms i was singing like little kids kids songs and stuff that i sing to my son sometimes and uh yeah it was just so pleasant and nice and i found all these mushrooms that i get to uh make and some are going to the perks and some are going to go into my freezer for uh, gravies and sauces but it was just a, such a nice pleasant day and it, and it continues here because I still have to uh, 
remember my day as I clean the mushrooms and relive, like I'll remember some of them. It's just a really pleasant uh, experience. And doesn't he seem like such a wholesome and pleasant person? I think he really is this. Yeah. You know, he believes what he's saying, right? I don't Mm -hmm. think this is just like, you know, somebody trying to pretend to be somebody they're not. I think he really is. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's hard to say over YouTube, but yeah, it's seemed that way. He seems like a very authentic soul through the camera. I like how he mentioned that plants are, you know, alive and in many ways in tune with us and it's so true um and mushrooms just you know fungi in particular such an interesting type of organism Mm -hmm. and have you have you seen the the clips of like people hooking mushrooms up to um these like i think they're like electrode transmitters and they actually like make music all different yeah they like emit these sounds and they can actually mm -hmm. make uh, like mushrooms are emitting their own sound and music and yeah and people are also doing experiments with plants speaking negatively to them and speaking positively right. to them. Yeah. And the yeah. results are unbelievable, honestly. So he's definitely correct in what he's saying. And I really resonate with a lot of his I wish so thoughts. bad I lived near like a forest Me I could too. just go forge through. And he's so right. Every time I'm out in nature, I feel way more, you know, relaxed and I think it's in just tune a, with myself. It's a natural response that yeah. we have as human beings. You know, we came from the earth, so when we're out enjoying the earth, it's a mm-hmm. whole different, it's just a whole different level of calm as opposed to any sort of calm you can mm-hmm. experience inside. Like, when was the last time you were inside a building somewhere where you felt so calm that you were, you could remember it, like being in this notable event? No. Ever? Never. Anybody? Mm-hmm. I can remember a lot of times in nature. Right. I, I think of all the times in my life where I have felt so calm you know, one with the earth, they say, or, you know, spiritually in tune with, with something yeah. divine. It's always been when I'm looking at greenery, mm-hmm. water, the sky. Water. Mm-hmm. It's never been when I'm even in, in some cool, as much as I love neon lights and, you know, black lights and <laughs> things do. like that. Like <laughs> that to me is calming sometimes, but it's just not the same. And the smell, I mean, I think it's because nature just activates all your senses too, right? You get Mm -hmm. the smells of the trees, you get the sounds of the birds, you get your whole body's like connected in. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. National Geographic. I found a little article here and it says plants might be able to eavesdrop on their neighbors and use the sounds they quote unquote hear to guide their own growth. It says in the new study, it was found that chili plants sprouted faster and were healthier compared to with those grown in isolation when they were grown next to quote-unquote good neighbors such as basil that help inhibit weed growth and pests. See, they're so much more in tune than we think, picking up on energy from other plants around them. Yeah, and I've actually heard um, from people on YouTube, like someone commented on my video once that, because I was talking about gardening, and they were saying that if you grow plants together, they prefer to be together because i was talking about how my pepper plant sucks and they said that if they put another plant next to it they like will almost kind of hold friend. hands and like intertwine with each other and that it will help really? make them stronger and grow better overall and produce more fruits and stuff yeah it's true plants have emotions and plants are underrated you know, man. yeah they, clearly you should have a shirt this is like if you if you're plants some, are underrated yeah. man so like if you're you know if you're somebody out there who you know, lives in a state where you can grow cannabis or maybe you've, you know, toured somewhere that, that grows cannabis. If you've ever just been around a mature mm-hmm. cannabis plant, it will change you forever because 
it just when you look at it it's so beautiful you, you just you look at the trichomes you look at the buds you look at the flower you look at all of it and you're just like wow this thing is incredible and the fact that it came comes from these tiny tiny little seeds you're just yeah. like whoa like uh-huh. there's just something magical <laughs> about it and obviously you know it's got the the psychoactive elements to it but hemp as well hemp's a beautiful plant as well it doesn't have the psychoactive so Sebastian kind of drifted around at different jobs for a while, but he never really got settled on a career track. He got a job in construction and then later a job in tree planting. And at one point, he even found work as a sea urchin diver. That's very cool. Yeah, that is a cool job. His co-workers on the diving boats nicknamed him Seabass. But they said he was kind of distant and a spacey guy who sort of lived in his own little world. Sometimes when they had a conversation with him, he would randomly start staring off into space and they'd have to ask him a question to pull him out of whatever thoughts he was lost in. One of his fellow divers said, from the minute I met him, I felt like he was lost and he was trying to find himself. It was almost as if Sebastian was looking for direction or some sort of purpose in his life. But there was no question that nature and spirituality were a key part of his life. And as for a sense of purpose, he definitely got a lot of that out of being a loving father. Because in his early 30s, Sebastian had a son. His relationship with the mother didn't last, and Sebastian was heartbroken since he thought he had found someone to settle down with. But thankfully, they stayed good friends and co-parented together. And all Sebastian's friends and family said that he was a great father who loved his son more than anything. He taught his son all about nature and foraging, too. It was important that Sebastian taught him how to be a steward of the land. They bonded over activities like swimming in the local river or searching for mushrooms in the woods. We've got a clip, actually, of Sebastian teaching his son how to hunt for chanterelle mushrooms. Here we are in the woods, and we found some mushrooms. So, can you tell me what kind they are and everything? Because they are smushy, and they have, and they are yellow on the top and white on the bottom. Okay, let's show show us how you collect them. <coughs> Hi, Chantal. Remember, you always say hello. Because it's alive. Hello, Chantal. Hello. We're going to kill you, sorry. Well, no, the creature's underground. We want, It wasn't kill it. So, show, how do we pick it? Show we, everyone. You kind of go underground, and yeah. then we snip, and then we leave one part of it in underground. That's right. He's so cute. Good job. Sebastian was also known by his friends to be very gentle, as you just saw with his son, who's a kind person who'd give you the shirt off of his back. He knew all the local homeless people in the town, and he was willing to help anyone who was struggling. He lived around the Comox Valley area in Vancouver Island, but spent most of his time around the towns of Curtinay and Cumberland, and sometimes even lived in an RV. It seemed like his life's quest had become achieving spiritual enlightenment. He wanted to really become one with nature and unlock all of its knowledge and healing power. And that's how Sebastian had become very interested in Native American spirituality and rituals. He became so interested in his mission and his studies of Native American rituals that he participated in a Sundance ceremony, which those rituals make up the most sacred ceremony for many indigenous peoples of the Great Plains. And the biggest part of the ceremony, though, is physical sacrifice. So participants undergo intense fasting and praying. And for some tribes, as part of the ceremony, the participants pierce their chest with sharp hooks and then tether those hooks to a tree. Oh my God. And yes, it is as intense as it sounds. Sebastian was very proud of his participation in the Sundance ritual, and he liked to show off his chest scars to his fellow divers. 
And according to one of those divers, it seemed like he was one of those white kids searching for any kind of spiritual connection he could find. And it's around that time that Sebastian discovered ayahuasca. Ayahuasca plays a major part in this case. We're going to be mentioning it quite a bit. So let's give you a little bit of history of what it is and its cultural significance. So for those that don't know, ayahuasca is a drink brewed from the plants Benisteriopsis capi and usually Psychotria viridis, which contains DMT. And it's long been used by indigenous peoples of the South American Amazon basin. And for these indigenous peoples, ayahuasca is a form of spiritual medicine used in ceremonies to heal the user and bring them closer to the spirit realm. On a scientific level, when someone drinks ayahuasca, the body breaks down the chemicals from the plants and absorbs the chemical dimethyltryptamine, or DMT. It's also known as the spirit molecule. When Psychotria viridis is consumed alone, stomach acid neutralizes the DMT in it, so it has no effect. But when it's brewed with Banisteriopsis capi, the alkaloids in it block the neutralizing effect, and the user feels the intense effects of the dimethyltryptamine. Dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, is a psychoactive entheogenic compound. So basically, in simpler terms, it's a drug that alters the user's perception of reality and expands their consciousness. DMT produces a whole host of different effects that make for a very strong spiritual and psychedelic experience. And some of the cognitive effects include strong hallucinations, euphoria, and ego death, which if you don't know what ego death is, Mm -hmm. it's basically the dissolving of your sense of self or a complete loss of short and long-term memory. Sounds unbelievably horrible. it depends on who you are, but well, it, I guess it, good things can come out of it. But yeah, when it, the actual right, right. Thing. Well, losing like losing your sense of self, I mean, is not a natural yeah. thing, right? Like we're mm-hmm. so wrapped up in ourself, our ego, that when you remove it, what's left? Well, yeah. you're literally losing all control mm-hmm. of being able to try yeah. and pick apart who you are. And humans want control, especially right. of their own thoughts. And so when that's gone, I mean, it's a little trippy. No pun intended. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And and just psychedelics in general, when you do psychedelics, it's everybody experiences them differently. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not like a uniform experience for, you know, from one person to the next. There's certain elements that carry over, but there's a lot of things that vary per person. And because so much of it is, I mean, it's altering your consciousness. So everybody's consciousness is different and everybody's sense of self mm-hmm. is different. So mm-hmm. it's going to affect everybody differently. But DMT is one of those psychedelics and ayahuasca that are definitely the most intense experiences out there, at least known to man right now. Life-changing. Yeah, and it it dramatically, I mean, to put in simpler terms, it basically rips you out of your body and transports you to another place for a little while. And, you know, on the DMT front, then ayahuasca, you know, there's a lot of hallucinogenic effects with that one that linger for far longer than a normal dmt trip would but ayahuasca is thought to be more of a healing brew ceremony to treat depression anxiety addiction and other mental conditions i mean people go down to the amazon all the time westerners this is very popular western Mm -hmm. civilization we have not done ayahuasca at least not yet but (laughs) everything that i don't know if i everything that i've learned about it is like really interesting and and um, it is you it's know. really interesting, but it just sounds so intense. I can't imagine going through it. I mean, the physical effects that you go through as well. 
not only mentally, but your body's like completely cleansing. It seems like detoxing. You start well, shitting, be, well, and puking. That, well, that's and, yeah, that's because of the brew, and because it's part of what the shaman believe connects you to the spirit world. Yeah, is that you have to be at your purest, you know, yeah, purest form, which makes sense. But it just sounds so so intense. And I've heard many stories of people that have had to do it multiple times before it was beneficial or a good experience. That they had to do it. Oftentimes, you know, five, if you go down there, days. You, yeah. Well, that's how they do it, though. It's not just like a one-time thing. Most of the time, well, they sometimes start in it small, is. Well, yeah. I mean, you can say people. no after it, but if you go to, you know, I've I've researched a lot of these centers and um and places in the Amazon where you can go and actually do this, and a lot of times it's it's a slow, gradual increase right so you mm -hmm. take a little bit of the brew and mm -hmm. then the next you know the next yeah. night you do a little bit more so it gets more and more you know potent and enhanced the mm -hmm. more you do it versus like if they're going to give you a massive dose your first time ch chances are you might you might freak the fuck out oh yeah versus if you well even if you have a small dose a lot of people freak the fuck out for as they're yeah, slowly I mean, going yeah, up. Yeah, especially if you've never experienced a psychedelic yeah. before. I mean, it could definitely probably be a frightening experience for you if you don't understand yeah. what that's like. I but, mean, I totally believe in the power of plant medicine and psychedelic healing. I've experienced it myself, for sure, and in a medical setting with ketamine. So I know that it could be amazing, but I'm so afraid of the experience and just the idea, the fact that DMT is released when is it the die. loss of control? No, it's well, yeah, it's the loss of control. That's a big thing. But also the fact that, like I said, it this natural chemical is released in our brains when we die. So part of me is like, are we supposed to experience that before we die? Or well, people experience so... near death experiences other ways, and the stories from those are oftentimes very positive. Yeah, and, that's true. And end up changing that person. From yeah. maybe a very dark path that they're on to a much better path with more purpose. And that's the thing is mm -hmm. like, yes, from everything that I've heard and I know people very close to me that have done DMT and they've described it as a near-death experience. It is experiencing your own death. But that sounds so morbid and horrible. But at the same time, there is something very beautiful and loving about that that only the person experiencing could could feel. But just hearing it from a third, you know, third party perspective, mm -hmm. you're like, oh, that sounds terrifying. I don't want to. Why would I want to experience my own death? But it's like death is actually it depends it's on how like you the view death, death of the person you were before you do these. Right. You know, right. Did well, yeah, exactly. Actual experience. And then you become a new version of yourself. Right. And that's why people do ayahuasca is because mm -hmm. there is this possibility that you you may be able to unlock different parts of yourself that you may, may have never been able to access before. And ayahuasca is going to help you work through these different things, whether it's PTSD or it's yeah. uh, terminal illnesses. I mean, coming to terms with your, if you're a if you have a terminal illness and you know, you're going to die, if there's something out there that can help you make peace with that right. and maybe give you a glimpse of what that might look like. And that's the thing about DMT is it's really this, I believe and this is why it's called the spirit molecule is it's literally showing you the other side. Like you are connecting with what happens when we go. And I truly believe that. And that's why if there is a way to experience that before you actually go, if why wouldn't you want to see what that's like? And I've everything I've heard is that is this, this loving 
energy. And obviously there's lots of, everybody has lots of other stories and, you know, entities that they encounter and Mm -hmm. things get wild at times. But the overarching theme is that you come back and you feel better than you did before. New person. And again, it's, there's a lot of other factors that play into that, but you know, set setting, who you're with, where you're at in your life. But if you go into it the right way and you follow what the shaman are saying, and do it the way they've done it for thousands of years. There's a reason they've been doing this. It's not just to trip and and have this crazy experience. They do it because they've seen the healing that it can provide, and that's what. But then there's cases like this, what we're about to get into. Well, but as we'll get right. into, there's We've, other yeah, there's yes. other factors that may have played into this. That's and true. Can you overdo something? Absolutely, and that's another thing yeah. to keep in mind. That yep. Yeah. I've read that DMT also is released in your dreams or when you're dreaming. Oh, really? Yeah. Which the thing is, is this proven? Well, the thing is, is that there's not a lot of research on this because it's illegal. I mean, most places in the world, especially the U.S., it's very illegal, which kind of sucks because we can't get funding to do research on it. So there is very little research. And that's what kind of, you know, sucks about it is that we don't really know exactly what's happening when we're doing it or if Mm -hmm. it really is. Um, only when we're dying or when we're born or when we're dreaming, you know, we we need to have more research done on it. And which, I was which is interesting because I wonder I wonder like how because there are ayahuasca retreat centers here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Because the way that you get around it is if this is a part of a religious ceremony, yeah. then the it can't be, you know, illegal. Right? Yeah. And that's great and all, but I'm talking about like in order to do mass amounts of research, you need huge participation and it's you know yeah there's some places around here but most of the time that's not even for research purposes it's for religious purposes right and that's a huge difference like i'm Mm -hmm. i was looking for studies for it and you know that have been done and there's not that many like i found one from 2013 that took place they looked at a retreat that took place in um british columbia canada and it's called the working with addiction and stress retreats and it's basically made up of four days where a group of people will go and they'll do two expert-led ayahuasca ceremonies, and they'll also do counseling. But the total participants is only 12. Well, I think part of it, part of the research issue is because DMT, which is found in ayahuasca, is a Schedule One drug. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's the same with, like, marijuana, where marijuana's been, which finally we got some news that Biden might yeah. be able to get mm-hmm. marijuana rescheduled. So it's not a damn Schedule One drug, and we can actually start researching it and pouring federal funding into yes. the the research of, of marijuana and the the effects and medicinal benefits of it and actually maybe you know some good could come of it but i think a lot of us are skeptical because it could go a different way but just reclassifying it from a schedule one drug is going to help get more research done on it mm-hmm. in any case but i mean then you go into the argument of like do yeah, they even want to legalize it and do research on it because what if it is used for purposes that could be healing then right do you want that like like I was saying, that retreat, that people reported um, a huge decrease in wanting to use alcohol, tobacco, cocaine. Um, and so, like you were saying, Josh, about how a lot of times people who use ayahuasca can be used for healing pro- properties. A lot of people use it when they're um, addicted to a substance and yeah. substance abuse. Yeah. And they also you know, were reporting having heightened feelings of hopefulness and empowerment and mindfulness and like that's this is all great but it's such a small amount of people that have been studied it's just you can't really rely on this type Mm -hmm. of information because 
there's just not enough of it, unfortunately. Well, and it's not like there's there's all these well-educated, qualified individuals at these retreat centers that are actually doing these studies and, re- yeah. you know, like until people who are knowledgeable on the substances and the actual chemical makeup, how does it affect yeah. the brain? What's it actually doing? Get a hold of it and are able to research it and study individuals. We're not going to know because we don't have the right people looking at it no. yet. So. Mm-hmm. We need sample sizes of like thousands of people right, that right. are doing this right. over many, many years and people who are looking at the effects from start to finish, not just some person that went, you know, 12 people that went to Canada, yeah. tripped ayahuasca yeah. and then filled out a form afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, it, it points to healing properties, but it's not we, we don't have enough more, research to right. really like solidify that. Yeah, which is honestly just so sad. Yeah, it is. Right. And there's and there's not studies on. What if somebody does, you know, too much, too much ayahuasca and does instead of the three ceremonies that most retreats do when you're there, does 20 in a short span of time? What is that going to do to your brain? And so there's there's all these different caveats that haven't been explored or researched yet. And, And I mean, ultimately, the fear is if and we're already seeing this with with psychedelics is that if psychedelics do get reclassified. Is the pharmaceutical industry going to come in yes. and take it over? And then that's always a concern. Get, you know, your right? ayahuasca is going to become a pill you take. Yeah, and that's produced by you know one of the major pharmaceutical mm-hmm. brands. And is it mm-hmm. going to? Are we going to be able to preserve the the way that this has been done for thousands of years? Yeah. Or is once they're able to make money off of this, they're well, going to completely the change it around? And could that have a different effect versus the way that they do it in the Amazon? Right. Yeah, and that's that's the difficult part about this is the more you know we get involved the more research we do and the more people are introduced to ayahuasca the more of a chance that it will be exploited oh yeah just like everything else is going to get exploited Mm -hmm. i mean it's already happening with marijuana and ketamine yeah well i mean it's growing at such a fast rate just the amount of people that know about psychedelic healing now and and know about ayahuasca is completely different than it was a few years ago but maybe that's the way that it reaches the masses too so like the flip side is like with because if the pharmaceutical industry does recredit they're able to get it to more people yeah so it's kind to, of like pick yeah, your poison it's situation sword, it's yeah. never going to be perfect traditional ayahuasca ceremonies are led by shamans or curanderos which translates to healer and these shamans are experienced spiritual guides who guide participants through this intense trip before the trip participants sometimes undergo a special diet and routine or dieta, to prepare for the ceremony. And this dieta includes abstaining from things like sex, alcohol, pork, and sweet, spicy, salty, or rich foods. During a traditional Peruvian indigenous ayahuasca ceremony, participants sit on the floor of a maloca, aka a longhouse, and the ceremony is typically performed at night. The participants drink the brewed ayahuasca, and as it starts to kick in, the shaman starts singing sacred healing chants, known as ikaros. Ayahuasca is pretty hard on the stomach, as you could probably imagine, and definitely does not taste great. Plus, at the start of the ceremony, it's pretty common for the participants to smoke a strong, sacred tobacco known as mapacho. So at this point, many participants start the first phase of the trip, which is purging, which usually takes the form of bouts of vomiting or sometimes even diarrhea. The trip usually lasts about three or four hours, and it peaks sometime around the first third of the experience the participants start to connect with the spirit realm and the plant spirits they've ingested with the help of the shamans that are there so this is a video or simulation of the visual experience that ayahuasca provides obviously we can't recreate an actual experience 
but it does kind of give you a little bit uh, of an idea of what it might be like. And just forewarning, there is flashing in this. That's kind of wild, man. Very I don't know, cool. man. It's cool, but I could see myself going down a very... I mean, that's trippy sitting here <sighs> sober in a yeah. studio, much less... Right? I don't know. The key is to submit, to not fight the experience. Josh, it's very hard to do that when you have an anxiety disorder. Yeah, I know. It's funny. <laughs> he doesn't understand anxiety. Well, I do. I've had some anxiety once in a while, and you just push it to the side. <laughs> you buy it a bus ticket. So funny how often I start telling him what I'm stressing out about or what I'm anxious about, and he's just like, "Just don't worry about that. Oh, just God. don't. I never. Had you need to just stop worrying Brilliant. about it. What is anxiety, though? Okay, okay let's not. We're not going into that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's for another episode. Anyway. So obviously, a lot of people who are looking for relief or spiritual enlightenment might want to seek out ayahuasca. To put it plainly, you trip your balls off. It's a very psychologically and emotionally intense experience, but for many people, it is extremely life-changing and healing. Here's a clip from the Temple of the Way of Light, an ayahuasca healing center in Peru. This is one of their participants describing his experience and how it changed him. Uh, my very first ceremony, I had my list of things I was wanting to work with, and they were all done in the first hour of the first ceremony. It was... Um, just mind-blowing and perfect it was beautiful and then after that um, just such beauty and connection and uh, vibration that happens in the ceremonies I was just overwhelmed with it my sense of belonging and uh, with each successive um, uh, ceremony I gained more and more insight about the real nature of my reality and myself and of the universe and my place in it and the connectedness of all things and the infinite scope of time and that I just learned patience and expectation and understanding and uh, that it's all coming as exactly as it should. It's such a peaceful feeling. <laughs> it is such a peaceful feeling to know that everything is as it should be. I have to say, I connect a lot with his words in some degree from experiences that I've had with psychedelics. Obviously, I've never done ayahuasca, but yeah, well, all I of them give you a lot, a lot of a, a lot of them give you a similar, similar, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, just on a smaller scale realizations that yeah. yeah. Versus this is like pulling you out and showing you, you know, something completely knew that these other psychedelics can't do it's mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you know the final frontier yeah so to speak the last boss I, I love what he said though i think i think that would be exactly my intentions for doing ayahuasca was to feel and experience those things mm -hmm. and because i've i've gotten a lot of those from other psychedelics but yeah this could be like sends you the over thing the that edge. just that just gives me that final like <laughs> mm -hmm. You're good. 
Yeah. You've always been looking for that. I am. I'm always looking for it. And I think it's going to provide that for you. So one For day, me or for you? For me. Because, mm. <laughs> yeah, I need that in my life. I do have to say I'm probably interested in doing it one day, just not anytime soon. So now there's a big market for ayahuasca tourism in the Amazon basin. Many healing centers have opened down there and advertise ayahuasca retreats primarily to white Western foreign tourists, known by the locals as gringos. But there are also less than reputable or fake shamans who have taken advantage of the booming ayahuasca tourism business. A lot of these fake shamans conduct rituals without any idea of what they're doing, so they're unprepared to help a tripper through this intense experience. Some of these fake shamans have drugged, robbed, and physically or sexually assaulted ayahuasca tourists. To the local indigenous populations, some of these fake shamans are considered soul-stealing brujos or brujas, which is Spanish for witch. And not only that, but you actually don't have to go through a shaman to get ayahuasca in many regions of Peru. It's commonly sold on the street in Coke bottles for a few dollars a dose. And without an experienced guide, taking ayahuasca alone or without supervision could be super dangerous. Oh, yeah. I couldn't even imagine. Sexual assault has been a growing problem in the ayahuasca community, actually. Shamans are revered and trusted figures, and the victims are under the influence of a very powerful drug, often in an unfamiliar location. So it's easy for them to take advantage of their victims. And the abusers can easily claim the victims were just unwell people hallucinating. So now that we've gone over ayahuasca, we can get back to the case. So Sebastian was first introduced to ayahuasca by his ex-brother-in-law, Steve Ellis. Steve brought Sebastian to his first ayahuasca ceremony in Whistler, British Columbia. And from there, he became fascinated with the magic healing brew. But everything changed in 2013. One of Sebastian's family members was an alcoholic and in need of treatment. Sebastian attended their intervention. And after that, he had a revelation. He decided to quit his job and dedicate himself to a new purpose, addiction counseling. But he wanted to take a different approach to healing addiction and the underlying trauma beneath it. Here's a clip from a video on Sebastian's YouTube channel called Addiction Help. In this video, he talks about his career change and the reasons behind it. Hello, um, my name's Sebastian. And uh, yeah, just here introducing myself. Um, 37 years old, father of a beautiful boy. It's four and a half. Bit of pain in the butt today, actually, but <laughs> he's pretty awesome. Um, I'm just uh, in the midst of a career change, and I'm looking for some help um, in making it a little bit easier. Um, I just had a recent, uh, uh, pretty big event, actually. We had a family intervention for a. Uh, for drinking for a family member um, and yeah it was pretty huge um, before the event um, I thought it would be nice to quit drinking just to empathize with what um, we were asking that that family member to do so yeah so I had some lead up to it and just kind of took it seriously and uh, the uh, intervention was, um, it was amazing. Sebastian thought that the Western approach to addiction treatment just wasn't working. It had horribly low success rates, and it did very little to heal the person as a whole, their soul included. Plus, it did nothing to heal generational trauma from the family. 
So instead, he was going to develop a method of addiction treatment based on indigenous healing methods. And to do that, he created a six-year plan to achieve his goal. And that plan involved three months of studying ayahuasca under the expertise of a shaman deep in the jungles of Peru. Sebastian launched an Indiegogo to fundraise money for his new mission. And the fundraising goal was set to $10,000 in Canadian. And he would need $2,000 for travel, two flights, meals, and two safe cab rides, plus or minus 200, 6,800 for Shipibo Healing Center, 600 for local Spanish translator, and $600 for the PayPal Indiegogo portion. Unfortunately, though, he only ended up raising about $2,000, but that didn't stop Sebastian. He was going to pursue his mission anyway. So in September of 2014, he traveled to the jungles of Iquitos, Peru, and that's where he started studying with a shaman named Guillermo Arevalo. And unfortunately, that's where Sebastian's slow descent into madness began. We will get more into his first trip to Peru after we take this quick ad break. Access for free when you go to dipsea.stories.com slash milehire. That's dipsystories.com slash milehire. So the shaman Guillermo had visited Canada to perform ayahuasca ceremonies many times in the early 2010s. It was considered a huge honor to sit for a ceremony with him since he was considered a true master shaman. So that's probably how Sebastian was introduced to Guillermo, or at least how he got to know him. He ran multiple ayahuasca healing centers in Peru. It's important to acknowledge that some women have come forward and accused Guillermo and an unnamed member of his extended family of sexual assault. One woman said that she came to sit for a ceremony with Guillermo and that he had groped her while she was under the heavy effects of the plant medicine. The experience was horrible and confusing, but she didn't want to give up on the medicine, so she took it again in 2014. But unfortunately, she said that during this ceremony, one of Guillermo's relatives raped her and other female participants repeatedly. Members of the Canadian ayahuasca community sent around an open letter that detailed the multiple allegations. It warned women to avoid him and his treatment centers. Guillermo said he didn't read the letter, but he denied ever touching any women during a ceremony. He said that these were the imaginings of an unwell person. He did admit, though, that some of his healers have had sex with unwell people. He says that some of those relationships were initiated by the women because Western women, when they come, they're also seeking out healers. But he also said he stopped working with healers who have had sex with participants. He is still a practicing maestro in Peru. But Sebastian actually studied under him for three months at Guillermo's retreat called Bari's Beitza. Guillermo remembered that Sebastian was a, quote, good person, although one struggling with trauma. Guillermo didn't discuss what he meant by that, but it's clear that through the events of the next few years that Sebastian was definitely struggling mentally. After his three-month stint in Peru, Sebastian returned home to Canada. To the people in Sebastian's life, it seemed like the trip went really well, and it definitely made Sebastian that much more determined in his mission to become a shaman himself. Ayahuasca, like most other hallucinogenic drugs, is illegal in the U.S. and Canada. But obviously that doesn't mean you can't find it. There are plenty of underground ayahuasca ceremonies there. Oftentimes these ceremonies are led by gringo shamans, trained by indigenous curanderos. But it's also not uncommon for these organizers to fly out a Peruvian curandero to lead a ceremony up north. At some point, Sebastian got involved in this underground scene, and he participated in more ayahuasca ceremonies in Canada. One of his diving co-workers remembered hearing Sebastian on the phone organizing an ayahuasca ceremony in the Comox Valley area. 
But Sebastian's demeanor started to change pretty quickly after he sat through some more ceremonies. He was taking the ayahuasca to help heal him, but it seemed like it was having the opposite effect on him. His friends and family noticed that he'd become more withdrawn and obsessive. He started this intense plant-based diet where he cut out sugar and salt, and he was losing a lot of weight. He might have been on one of these plant dietas to prepare for these ayahuasca ceremonies he was attending. One of his friends said that Sebastian was a good person deep down, and that Sebastian had helped him through some tough times, but he knows the shift in him too. Lurking under the surface of his gentleness, Sebastian had a temper, and he could be volatile. His friends and family weren't the only ones who took notice of these changes in him. Sebastian was involved with a circle of Vancouverites in the ayahuasca and plant communities, and he had done many ceremonies with them before, but even they noticed that he started to become more aggressive, and at times mentally unstable. It concerned them enough that they told Sebastian he was allowed to sit at the ceremonies with them, but he couldn't drink the brew, but that didn't stop Sebastian. He decided to keep arranging ceremonies on his own, and in the meantime, he was still making regular trips down to Peru. His family thought that the back and forth in between Sebastian's dreams and his life in Canada was making him depressed. On one hand, he wanted to become a great, spiritually enlightened shaman who healed people of their mental problems. And those ceremonies as well as those trips to Peru made him feel like he was progressing on his life's quest. But every time he came back to Canada, instead of a dose of ayahuasca, he'd get a heavy dose of reality. Because he would have to go back to his everyday Western grind including his diving job and his normal responsibilities. For someone who was regularly taking psychedelics, that connected him to the spirit realms and confronted his very existence. This was probably a pretty jarring switch. There was a spiritual conflict deep within Sebastian's psyche at this point, and it started to take a toll on his personal relationships. He and his long-term girlfriend broke up, and his father started to get very worried about him. His son just seemed down all the time. He was really sad about the way his life was going. So he asked Sebastian to get professional help, but that only made Sebastian withdraw more from his family and friends. And by this point, what was the most concerning to them was the fact that they couldn't keep track of him. Sebastian would disappear for weeks at a time. Then after his family did some digging, they found out that he was in Peru. This sort of erratic behavior had gone on for a few years at this point. During 2016 and 2017, in between trips to Peru, Sebastian would sometimes make Facebook posts that sounded like he was depressed. He would talk about feeling down or wanting to be with friends. A post from July 26, 2017 read, Anyone like to see me? Feeling low, reaching out. But his family said that every time he took these trips to Peru, he came back even more closed off to them. They'd ask him what he was doing there or what the purpose of his visits were, but Sebastian never really got into it. It seemed to them that Sebastian had developed some sort of mental health issue. At some point that summer, Guillermo Aravalo told Sebastian to seek out his cousin Olivia Aravalo, a master shaman in Pucallpa. Pucallpa is a city in Ucayali, which is an inland region of Peru, and it's south of Iquitos, the city Sebastian was staying in during his previous Peru trips. So during the summer of 2017, Sebastian arrived in Pucallpa and rented a room from a local. It's not super clear what he was actually doing there, but there was an interaction Sebastian had with an expat there that was the first sign something was very, very wrong. The American expat, a man named Daniel, remembered seeing Sebastian walk into a cafe popular with expats living in Pucallpa. Daniel noticed that Sebastian was having a conversation with one of his friends that just looked sort of weird. So when Sebastian left, Daniel's friend asked him, Do you know that guy? And Daniel said he didn't. He had just seen him in the cafe that day. 
and the friend replied, Well, he just asked me for a gun. This was completely out of character for Sebastian, as his family said he wasn't interested in guns or firearms at all, and he never told anyone he needed one for protection. Obviously, his family didn't know about this conversation at the time, but the erratic behavior didn't stop there. In September of 2017, Sebastian was in Peru and he called up the owners of the fishing company he used to work for, and he asked them to loan him a few thousand dollars. Sebastian explained that he needed the money because both his passport and wallet had been stolen. The owners didn't give him the loan that he needed, and later that month, Sebastian was back in Canada working on the fishing boats. We're not really sure how exactly Sebastian was funding all of these trips to Peru. Again, he had only fundraised about $2,000 from his Indiegogo campaign, so we're just assuming most of the money came from his diving income and savings that he had. After all, it seems like he lived a pretty frugal life besides the trips, so he was probably just putting all of his money into this Peru project of his. Sebastian worked on the boats for a few weeks, but on December 15, 2017, he arrived in Lima, Peru and rented a car. Sebastian ran into some issues pretty quickly after he got to Peru again. First, he reported that his passport was stolen. Then he got into an accident in Lima with his rental car. And now he and the other driver had to wait for the police to come. Sebastian had been traveling down to Peru regularly for multiple years by this point, And so he was very invested in getting his business started. But yet, for whatever reason, he still hadn't learned Spanish. So to talk to the other driver, they both used translator apps on their phones. At one point, Sebastian used the translator to ask the other driver if he knew where he could get a gun. The driver thought the app had made some sort of mistake in translating that or he just didn't understand what Sebastian was saying. So the driver just responded, I don't know. And Sebastian said, don't worry about it. Finally, Sebastian was able to make his way to Pucalpa. Guillermo had told him to find his cousin Olivia there. But the problem was Guillermo hadn't given him that specific of instructions. So Sebastian had no idea exactly where she lived or how to find her. All he knew is that she was somewhere in the Pucalpa area. So Sebastian found a local taxi driver named Herbert to drive him around Pucalpa while he asked people if they knew Olivia Arvalo. Finally, one of the people he stopped pointed him towards a tiny village named Victoria Gracia. And soon enough, Herbert was driving Sebastian right up to Olivia's house. And this is where this case starts to get even darker. But before we get into their first meeting, we need to give you some background info on who exactly Olivia Aravalo was. Olivia Aravalo was a spiritual mother of the indigenous Amazonian Shipibo Kanibo tribe. The Shipibo Kanibo tribe is the second largest indigenous group in the Amazon with about 40,000 members. The Shipibo Kanibo people have a very rich history and culture, and a lot of their culture and worldview is based on their traditional spiritual use of ayahuasca. These sacred visions have inspired a lot of their beautiful and unique art. We've got a little clip just to give you an example of a healing Ikaro or healing song sung by Olivia herself. So the art that they make includes the healing Icaros we've mentioned before and what you've just heard. And those Icaros are created almost exclusively by women and their experiences with the ayahuasca plant medicine. These Icaros then inspire the distinct Shipibo pattern tapestries and pottery. 
So at the time of these events, Olivia was 81 years old, and she was born in 1933, and her Shibibo name was Panshin Buka. And when she was nine, she received her first Ikeros from her father. He breathed the Ikeros into a pipe and passed the pipe over her body, and from then on, she joined sacred ceremonies as a witness. She also began smoking the sacred Mapacho. At 15, she was already singing in ceremonies, and her family members began to teach her about sacred medicinal plants and the Shipibo ways. After she had visions that revealed sacred secret knowledge to her, she was able to use her gift of healing on others. She was one of the most powerful and well-respected Onanya, or plant healers of the Shipibo tribe. She was also one of Peru's first female shamans. Olivia was known lovingly in the village as a living ancestor. The temple she worked at remembered her as a record keeper of the Shipibo ways and a walking encyclopedia of traditional Shipibo plant medicine. Here's another video of Olivia Aravalo singing another Yikaro. So on this particular video, the top commenter actually said, I was actually in a ceremony with her, and in this particular ceremony I was having negative thoughts, and she came over to me and waved her hand over my head, and all my negative thoughts ceased. It was almost as if she gave me a spiritual slap. This woman was the equivalent of a guru. Wow. She was such an experienced and knowledgeable shaman with so much wisdom, but she still had such a youthful spirit. She still loved to giggle and laugh a lot, and her kindness and happiness were infectious. She had a profound gift for healing, and she formerly worked at a retreat called the Temple of the Way of Light from 2009 to 2011. And like many other Peruvian ayahuasca retreat centers, this one was owned by Western expats. But Olivia was not just a beautiful soul and a gifted healer. She was also an activist for indigenous people's rights. Over the years, the indigenous communities of the Amazon have been devastated by oil and gas extraction, illegal logging, illegal mining, and other forms of land trafficking. So a lot of her work fought to protect the local indigenous peoples from exploitation. She wanted to preserve the cultural rights of the Shipibo Conibo people. Olivia's remarkable life had started to get a bit more laid back as she got older, though. She stopped working at the Temple of the Way of Light in 2011 because she was too old to make the hour-long walk from her home. And in fact, it had been three years since she had last taken ayahuasca when a gringo named Sebastian Woodruff showed up at her doorstep. Olivia's granddaughter, Nellie Vasquez, can remember meeting Sebastian. And to her, he seemed erratic and unstable, and obviously that made her feel very uneasy. Sebastian told Nellie that he was sick and crazy and needed healing. He said that he wanted to take ayahuasca with her grandmother. Nellie was not super keen on helping this guy, but when he told her that Guillermo had sent him to Olivia, Nellie agreed to let Sebastian meet her grandmother. Again, Sebastian didn't speak Spanish, so he had to have one of the villagers translate for him. He told Olivia that he needed guidance and healing, and he asked Olivia if her healing powers could reach all the way back to Vancouver and heal his family there too. Olivia said that as long as he had faith, she could do that. So Sebastian told her that he'd go talk to his family in Vancouver and get back to her. Then he left. But that visit to Victoria Gracia was just the first of many. Here's a clip of Sebastian talking about family trauma from his addiction help video. 
this video sort of hints at the underlying family trauma that Sebastian was so hell-bent on healing. It wasn't the drinking problem, it wasn't the problem. It's the family. There's, there was all these things that uh, became apparent that were um, not dealt with, like years and years of trauma. That All I could describe it as is like the spirit of the family had been um, hurt or was injured. And uh, that one family member happened to be drinking, but there was other people that were, you know, they shopped a lot or they were workaholics or, uh, you know, they had, there's different forms of addiction and some of them are, are acceptable by society, but it doesn't mean that you're healthy just because you have an accept, acceptable addiction. So, make a long story short, um, I don't, I just couldn't see her changing. So, just out of the blue and no one else was. So um, I just decided to just drop what I was doing and uh, I'm gonna make a career change to become an addictions counselor. It just became obvious to me that uh, this was uh, something that I'd grown up with and uh, I'd never quite looked at it in that aspect. But uh, in retrospect, everything that I've ever done has been trying to achieve this normalcy that doesn't exist. I've been doing jobs that I thought a guy, this is a guy job, I'm gonna do what men do. And uh, so I did, I went fishing and diving and tree planting and build houses and blah, blah, blah. But none of that was really uh, satisfying because I was uh, kind of ignoring the, the elephant in the closet kind of thing whatever it's called, I don't know the expression. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm just totally dedicated to this. I'm, this is my what I want to make my life's work. Um, Very interesting. I feel like it's so common to have family trauma. Uh, um, yeah, I think every family does, has right? some form of trauma and like Never said, met a family acceptable without trauma. addictions. Yeah. That play into mm -hmm. that, right? Yeah, that's an interesting term. Yeah, acceptable, acceptable. addictions. Yeah. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, literally every family has something yep. going on. Like, yep. no matter how well you think your family's getting mm -hmm. along, like, there's always something. Yeah, and it's really interesting about generational trauma. That's just so Yeah, true. I liked how he said, like, the spirit of the family mm -hmm. was, yeah. was injured. And mm -hmm. I think that's a very interesting way to put it that really is um because it really is it like it that generational trauma is the spirit of the family carrying on and it carries over into the next generation especially like alcoholism things like that mm -hmm. that sometimes carry yeah. on from generation to generation so yep. so sebastian started coming back to the village pretty regularly olivia's granddaughter nelly remembered he was always coming around sometimes during the day sometimes during the night and these visits were far from pleasant a lot of times, Sebastian would show up pretty intoxicated. He would hang out and drink a beer at the bars in the village a lot. He'd also show up at Olivia's house, and he kept insisting that she take ayahuasca with him. But again, Olivia hadn't taken ayahuasca in years. Talking about Sebastian, one of the villagers said, He wasn't a normal person. Some neighbors found him prowling around in the darkness, and they were wondering what he was trying to do. In fact, locals were starting to get pretty concerned about this guy. This random gringo had turned up in their town on some sort of healing mission, but he was pretty menacing. 
and he freaked a lot of them out. In one instance, Sebastian showed up to a ceremony in Victoria Gracia holding a long club. He was asking to talk to Olivia's son, Julian Arevalo. The villagers guarding the ceremony told him to leave. Sebastian tried to sneak back into the ceremony, and when the guard caught him, Sebastian whacked him with the club. Some other villagers saw the assaults and took off after Sebastian. They eventually did catch him, but they took him to the police instead of dealing with him themselves. That probably saved Sebastian from getting seriously hurt, but only for now. They told him to leave and never return to the village again. But he kept coming back, and villagers actually had to hand him over to police two more times. But according to them, the police would detain Sebastian and then do nothing. Meanwhile, back in Canada, Sebastian's family and friends were starting to get worried. Christmas and New Year's had passed without any word from him. On January 3rd, 2018, a concerned family member posted on his Facebook page and said, Gotta ask, does anyone know where Sebastian could be? Family cares and has no idea. Please message me if you do. Thanks. Sebastian responded two days later and said, I am alive. He returned to Canada a week later on January 12th, 2018. It seemed like after he got back, he was trying to settle down in BC for good this time. At the time, he was living in his RV. In February, he posted on Facebook saying, looking for a job, house, basically a life. A few days later, he wrote, I miss my family and friends and feel like shit. I hope I am not sick. So it is clear that at this point, Sebastian was feeling pretty lost and lonely. But it seemed like he wasn't going to be making any trips to Peru anymore. And this was a relief for his friends since they thought that place was doing more harm for him than good. In the beginning of March, he posted, who's going to Peru? I have a lot of Peruvian money to sell. But he made another post a few days later that worried the people close to him. On March 11th, he wrote, I am period off to the jungle period to period do some period sold searching. He actually wrote search in and fix the mind. See you whence, period. I am healed. FML, period. Part four, period. So obviously a very confusing message, to say the least. Obviously, this post was a huge red flag. Many of his friends left comments saying that they were concerned for him. He responded to them by saying, thanks. Not gonna take the Aya. His family was trying to talk him out of going back, saying it wouldn't be good for him. His brother-in-law commented, are you sure those trips to the jungle are healing you? They couldn't understand why he was so set on going to Peru all the time, and they especially couldn't understand why he wanted to go back now. He had a life in BC and a son who loved him dearly. His friends and family were there, and it was a place that Sebastian knew well. On the other hand, Peru was a far-off foreign land with customs and a way of life that he just didn't fit into or fully understand. And by all accounts, the locals around Pucallpa didn't want him there. One of the reasons Sebastian kept returning to Peru might have been a business deal connected to Olivia's son, a man named Julian Aravalo. We briefly mentioned him earlier. He was the guy Sebastian was looking for when he came to a ceremony with a club. There were rumors going around that Julian and Sebastian had entered into a business deal that went south. In one version of the story, Sebastian gave Julian lots of money for ayahuasca ceremonies that never happened. But in another, Sebastian and Julian agreed to start an ayahuasca retreat center together. Sebastian paid Julian thousands of Peruvian soles, but Julian ripped him off, and now Sebastian was looking for his money. But the reason Sebastian kept coming back to Peru might have been that he was trying to heal his declining mental health, or of course it could have been a combination of that and Julian owing him money. 
Sebastian reached out to Guillermo Arevalo before he set out for Peru again. He said that he was bipolar and in need of healing at Guillermo's retreat. Guillermo said no, he'd be out of the country, but that didn't stop Sebastian. His mental state and his broken relationship with the Arevalos was shaping up to be a deadly combination. Which leads us to the crime, which we'll get into right after our last break. On March 14th, Sebastian arrived in Pucallpa. As for a place to stay, he rented low-cost rooms in nearby villages. It's not really known exactly what Sebastian did for the first week or so when he was there. But two weeks after he arrived, he wrote on Facebook, I am feeling better day by day in Peru. So thankful to be sitting with good peeps. And I am leaving the place I am at due to a tribal disagreement. An American expat named Simon, who worked at an ayahuasca center near Pucallpa, remembered seeing Sebastian in late March. He said that he turned up at a center looking for Julian. The shamans at the center asked him to leave, but Simon felt bad, and he offered to take Sebastian out for coffee the next day. To Simon, Sebastian seemed like a nice enough guy. They met up for coffee, and Simon tried to figure out what was going on with him. Sebastian really didn't explain much, he just wanted to know where Julian was, and Simon said he didn't know. Sebastian thanked him for his time and left the cafe, and from there he seemed to get a lot more desperate and paranoid. His mental state was worsening more and more by the day. On March 30th, Sebastian walked into a police station in Pucallpa and approached an officer. He used Google Translate to tell the 25-year-old cop that he wanted to buy his gun. He explained that he was planning a trip to the jungle and needed a gun to protect himself from wild animals. Plus, he offered the cop a hefty sum of money, 5,000 soles, or $2,000 in Canadian. The cop said he agreed to sell the gun because the gringo was offering such a high price. On April 1st, Sebastian made a Facebook post that read, Eating street meat in Peru up till this point has been no problem until now shitting in jungle day three. So this means he may not have been on a restrictive plant dieta. Meanwhile, Sebastian and the cop were still coordinating the gun sale. They both had to drop and sign the necessary paperwork. And believe it or not, this gun sale was legal, even though Sebastian didn't have a gun license. Plus, he could only come up with 3,000 soles, which was 2,000 less than promised. But it was still a good deal to the cops, so on April 3rd, the sale was finalized. And just like that, Sebastian was now in legal possession of a silver 9mm Taurus pistol. Two days later, Sebastian posted on Facebook, Not enjoying life right. Having a rough go. Please send me prayers. Then a few days later, Sebastian moved accommodations again. This time he rented a room from a family who lived outside Pucallpa. He also rented a motorbike from their neighbor for 90 soles, which was the price of the bike's insurance. His new living space was modest, with white walls and a towel floor. Sebastian never needed much, but in his room he did keep a book called The Happiness Equation, a long hunting knife and a wrestling mask. He also had three prescription pill bottles. One was for the anti-anxiety med, Clonopin. One was a sleeping pill called Zopiclone, which is like Ambien. And the third was an antipsychotic medication, Olanzapine. Olanzapine is used to treat bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. On April 10th, Sebastian went to the airport, but he wasn't trying to get home. He was actually looking for Herbert, the taxi driver who translated for him before. And when he found him, he explained that he was going back to Victoria Gracia and he needed a translator. He was trying to find Olivia Arevalo again. So Herbert agreed to meet Sebastian there later that day. But when he arrived at the village, he found Sebastian with a group of people. He explained that he was able to find a shaman who spoke English so he wouldn't be needing Herbert's services. He thanked him for coming out and paid him for his time, and then Herbert left, and that was that. We don't know what Sebastian did for the rest of the day. 
but he did post on Facebook saying, coming home soon and need a place to call home. PM friends, if you know of anything. It seemed like he was wrapping up whatever business he had in Peru. Only two days later, he posted on Facebook again, looking for a roommate in Curtinay. But then on the 14th, Sebastian ran into another big problem. Herbert had driven him to a police station outside of Pucallpa and reported that he'd been robbed. He said that he was drinking at a bar when two men came up to him, pretending to be police officers. And then these two thieves supposedly stole his passport, insurance, phone, driver's license, and motorcycle registration, which obviously is a huge problem. Finally, on April 18th, Sebastian turned up once again in Victoria Gracia. This was his final attempt at getting his money back from Julian Arevalo. Olivia's daughter, Virginia, spotted Sebastian that day holding up a sign in Spanish that said, Julian owed him 14,000 soles. That's about 4,000 Canadian dollars. Virginia didn't understand why Sebastian was looking for money from her brother. She said that he would never have borrowed that much money from anyone. But regardless, Sebastian left Victoria Gracia that day defeated and empty-handed. But he'd be back the next day. And this is when things went really wrong. Around 7 a.m. on April 19th, 2018, Sebastian took the motorbike out on a short trip and came back to his room. Around 10.30 a.m., he told his landlord's son that he was leaving again and he was going to take ayahuasca. With that, he slung his backpack over his shoulders, hopped on the red motorcycle, and headed for Victoria Gracia. Sebastian arrived at the center of the village around noon. He stopped at Olivia's gray wooden house and took off his helmet. Then he reached into his backpack and pulled out his gun. Sebastian started to yell, Julian, over and over again. Julian opened one of the windows and poked his head out. Sebastian then fired a single shot into the air. From there, Julian took off and ran outside to the back of the house. The sound of the gunshot rang through Victoria Gracia, and a crowd of villagers came running towards the noise. And that's when they spotted Sebastian and made a beeline for him. At the same time, Olivia Arvalo came out of the house to investigate the commotion. When she saw Sebastian, she started yelling at him, asking him what he was doing and telling him to put the gun down. The villagers were still making their way towards him and shouting at him. Sebastian may have been panicked by the commotion and the yelling, but either way, he turned towards his motorcycle to make an escape. Olivia was blocking his path. Just then, Sebastian pointed the gun at her and fired twice. And that's when Olivia fell to the ground. Olivia's daughter ran out to her mother and held her in her arms. And Olivia cried out, they're killing me. They're killing me as she lay dying. Sebastian threw the gun in his backpack and desperately tried to start the motorcycle, but it wasn't working. He'd always had trouble starting it. The angry villagers were getting closer and closer to him. Finally, he was able to start the bike and he sped away from the house. But the street Sebastian was driving on was unpaved and gravelly. Suddenly, he hit a snag in the road and flew off of the bike. And now the villagers were able to catch up with him. Sebastian was lying on the road, injured and bleeding. Some of the villagers grabbed him and pulled him up. Other witnesses grabbed Sebastian's backpack and pulled out the gun. They knew what Sebastian had done. The boogeyman had gone and killed their beloved shaman, the spiritual heartbeat of that village. And it was just too much to bear. Not only that, but this gringo had come and demanded their time demanded healing, and put the entire community in a state of fear. And now that he had just killed Olivia Arevalo, they were filled with rage. By then, an angry mob had gathered around the scene, 
Some of them shouted that they needed to bring Sebastian to the police. But at this point, many villagers thought that the police had been totally useless when it came to Sebastian. So they decided that they were going to take justice into their own hands now. The men surrounding Sebastian told the crowd not to call the police. A villager watching the scene sped away on a motorcycle. He didn't want to be involved in what was about to happen, and he didn't approve of it either. But he said, But he who kills has to die. That's the Indian law. The following events were recorded on a cell phone by a witness. The video is graphic, so for obvious reasons we won't be playing it, but um, we'll tell you what happens. So in this cell phone video, it's pretty grainy anyways. Sebastian is seen lying in a puddle covered in dirt and blood. He's trying to stand, but his legs can't hold him up. He can't really speak. He's just moaning in pain because he flew off the motorcycle trying to get away. And all that comes out is gurgling as he swallows muddy water and blood. But the men around him are shouting and screaming at him. They're overcome with anger and one of them screams, Why did you kill her, you son of a bitch? The rest of the witnesses are watching the scene unfold. Then a man in a baseball cap pulls out an old seatbelt loop. He ties it around Sebastian's neck. Sebastian was able to throw it off, but the man ties it back on again. And now it's formed a noose around Sebastian's neck and he cries, Please no. And in the video it looks like Sebastian opens his mouth and barely moans out the word mother. One of the witnesses says, you asked for it. And Sebastian continues to struggle for his life. And one of the men shouts, pull, pull. And the man in the baseball cap yanks at the rope again and again. The men end up dragging Sebastian through the mud by his neck. And obviously he stops struggling. When the man releases the belt, Sebastian drops to the ground, lying face down with his arms at his side. But then Sebastian weakly lifts his head as he's barely clinging to life. Then the man grabs the belt and yanks it, pulling it tighter and tighter around his neck. And this is likely when Sebastian Woodruff took his final breath. And then the video abruptly ends. When the police finally get to the village, they find Olivia's body sitting under a coconut tree with two bullet wounds to her chest. They also found three bullet casings a few yards away from the scene. The villagers told the police that Sebastian was the one who killed Olivia, but they also said that he had escaped and they didn't know where he'd run off to. And for hours, Olivia's body sat there while grieving villagers talked to the police. Someone from the village even created a wanted poster for Sebastian that circulated around social media. It read, Wanted, Sebastian Woodruff of Canadian nationality. Police brothers help pass this on Facebook. This is the man that murdered Maestra Olivia Arevalo after making her sing an Icaro. He found her alone, asked her to sing, and killed her after. This happened in the colony Victoria Gracia Ukeali, Peru. Let's hope they find him. Reward. And then it listed the number for Julian Arevalo. But the truth was, everyone knew that Sebastian wasn't on the run and that he was already dead. So the wanted poster was probably a way to throw police off their track. But only two days later, police found the video of Sebastian's lynching circulating on Facebook. And when they returned to the village, they did a search, and that's when they found Sebastian's body. The villagers had buried Sebastian in a shallow two-foot grave about 700 yards from the village. He was bruised and bloodied, and he had been covered in a blue tarp. They also found the Taurus pistol used in the murders buried in a cemetery near the village. Now the police had to try and piece together what happened in Victoria Gracia that day and what had happened that was so bad that led to two murders. Since Sebastian's body had been buried, it was going to make it hard to test him for gunshot residue. That would definitely confirm him as Olivia's killer. The police were able to match the Taurus pistol to the three bullet cartridges found near Olivia. The first round of forensic testing didn't find any gunshot residue on Sebastian's body. And some people believe that showed that he wasn't the killer. His family and friends, for one, couldn't believe that he'd ever be capable of murder. His father said that he knew his son and that he found it hard to believe 
Sebastian had murdered Olivia. Some of his friends made similar statements. They all said Sebastian was this gentle, kind soul who couldn't have been a murderer. But when the investigators did some more extensive testing, they confirmed that Sebastian had gunshot residue on his hands and sleeves. Sebastian had fired the gun. And as for the gun, the police traced it back to the sale with the cop. So all the evidence pretty conclusively points to Sebastian as Olivia's killer. As for Sebastian's killers, the police identified them as four men from the town. One of them was actually the mayor of Victoria Gracia. But the police have never been able to arrest any of the four men. Once they got word that the police were looking for them, they went into hiding. The four are currently hiding out somewhere in the jungle, and they're being protected by many of the townspeople. As for Sebastian's motive for killing Olivia, that's never been conclusively proven. A deal gone wrong with Julian Arevalo seems likely, but no one knows for sure. In Julian's statement to police, he said that he wasn't even at the house when Sebastian showed up. He said that that morning, Olivia came to visit him at his house around 8 a.m. Her house was a 10-minute walk from his. She went home around 11 a.m. Then he went to pick his kids up from school. He came home around 1 p.m., and at that point, he got the call informing him that his mother had been killed. Also, at this time, Sebastian had been prescribed some pretty significant medications, including an antipsychotic. We don't know if Sebastian was on ayahuasca at the time of the murders or how often he was actually taking the drug while he was in Peru. But what we do know is that ayahuasca and a psychiatric condition like bipolar or schizophrenia is not a good mix. Even if this possible condition wasn't made worse by ayahuasca, if Sebastian was having a psychotic episode, this might have led him to Victoria Gracia that day in April. Maybe Sebastian had been looking for Julian and he was really at the scene. Maybe Sebastian was trying one last time to get Olivia to heal him. Maybe he was tripping out on ayahuasca. Or maybe he was having a psychotic episode. Maybe it was a combination of any of those things. But regardless, what happened, happened. And now two people are dead. Sebastian's parents lost a beloved son and their friends lost their kind, helpful friend that they always knew. And perhaps most importantly, a nine-year-old boy lost his loving father. He'll never get to swim in the lake or forage for mushrooms with him ever again. We will end this retelling of Sebastian's case with this clip from his addiction help video. And end this with just saying that I have a lot of uh, love and gratitude for the process of life. Um, I'm very thankful for uh, how things have went. Things could have went sideways for me a lot in my life and they didn't. And uh, that was just pure luck. So I'd like to just thank the universe or the spirits or God or whoever is looking out for me and uh, just say that um, I thank you and that I'm going to pay you back and I'm going to try to help people. As for Victoria Gracia, they lost her beloved maestra, Olivia Aravalo. She held such extensive knowledge and she was such a gifted healer. And because of that, some of the mourners said that when she died, it was as if the Shipibo Canibo way itself had died. Here's a clip from a tribute to Victoria Gracia and Olivia Aravalo from 2019. <laughs> 
And the families of those four men in hiding are affected by the situation too, as they've lost the main breadwinners of the family, and as far as we know, their families will remain separated until they come back out of hiding. Those men were important members of the community, and now they're gone too. Not only did the community lose Olivia, they lost their sense of safety and peace. The town's current mayor, Becky Linares, said that all was peaceful in the village until Sebastian came around. And the police were never very responsive to the people of Victoria Gracia. But now that a Canadian died there, the cops were everywhere. Becky was angry that there was a police presence, not because of the grandmother who was murdered, but because of the gringo. And now, according to Olivia's granddaughter, Nellie, she feels haunted by the gringo. And she and the other villagers have a hard time trusting outsiders or foreigners. Yeah, I can imagine so. Yeah, seriously. The murders haven't affected ayahuasca tourism in Peru or around Pucolpa. Every year, thousands of tourists still flock to Peru to sit at the healing ceremonies. But there are a lot of important lessons to be learned here. To one of Sebastian's friends, Yero Willard, it's to not mess with your spiritual self. But it's also a lesson to respect indigenous cultures and their ways of life. These are sacred customs and rituals that have been passed down through centuries upon centuries of generations. If you are lucky enough to be welcomed as a guest, you must recognize yourself as just that, a guest. And your invitation, should you get one, can be revoked. So obviously an incredibly sad case all around. Not only did this village lose a well-respected shaman, but Mm -hmm. Sebastian's family lost their Mm -hmm. son. And his son lost his father. And that's really, really tough. I mean, I think there's so many things to unpack here. And, you know, we don't know for sure. We probably never will know exactly what happened that day. Other than, you know, we know what happened to Sebastian. But we don't know Mm -hmm. exactly how everything unfolded with Olivia and and Julianne. And what was the motive, right? Mm -hmm. What was going through his mind that day? No one will ever know. But it seems like based on the evidence that we do have is that Sebastian's mental state was Mm -hmm. getting worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And likely that led to a psychotic break at some point. Possibly. I mean, there's a reason that, I mean, based on the prescription pills that he was on, there's a reason why before you ever partake in ayahuasca, you're told that you have to stop taking that because... Mm -hmm. The, there, it is scientific fact that SSRIs and other psychotic drugs like that anti-psychotic, do, anti-psychotic drugs, sorry, that, that do not mix well with ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Um, well, also, if you're predisposed to those mental illnesses, they can sometimes be triggered by uh, yeah. hallucinogenics in general. So it's mm-hmm. really important that if you are going to do this, that you're aware of your family history and you know anything that you potentially could have predisposed to even if it's not you're not currently having symptoms of um that can be triggered after you take the hallucinogenic and then you can't get rid of it yeah and it's so common to to hear someone else's experience and they had a great experience with it so you can be easily convinced to participate in psychedelics which i personally feel like they've been great for me but you have to approach it with such caution because it does affect everyone so so differently right right and i I don't think a toxicology report was ever done on him so we don't we'll never know exactly mm. what drugs were in his body at the time i believe he was cremated pretty quickly after his death um so there was no yeah chance to even figure out exactly what you know if he was on ayahuasca at the time or not 
but it seems, I mean, it just seems like this was, could it have been, you know, too much over a period of time? And, you know, it sort of led him to this place, this mental state he was in, or was this something that could have happened at any point during his life? And ayahuasca had nothing to do with it. Yeah. I think that's kind of the, you know, something we'll just never know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's frustrating. I, yeah, it is. It is. And obviously horrible for Olivia's family and, you know, everything that they went through. But we want to know your thoughts on this this case. Yeah, definitely. Um, let us know in the comments. If you're watching on YouTube, if you're on Spotify, make sure you let us know your thoughts via social media at MileHeartPod. But we're going to wrap up today's episode there. Yep. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Mile Heart Podcast, and we will see you 